We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Down on the Corner, the authors Mark Rosenman and Howie Carpin. Please join me as we welcome Mark Rosenman to the clubhouse. Thanks, Thank you so much, Mark. I, I really appreciate that so, you can make it. Uh, I've looked forward to it all summer long. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, un unfortunately, Howie got called away for a work assignment yes. at the last moment. But just for those of you listening to the podcast and those of you who may not know about Mark in here, who are here tonight, uh, Mark Rosenman has been covering sports since 1979 as an on-air talk show host on Cablevision, WGLI and WGBB. He is currently the host and producer of Sports Talk New York on WLIE 540 AM. And I guess just to get us going uh, with Down on the Corner, how did, how did you decide to write this book? How did it come about? It's basically from that first book. So what's happened over the number of years I have done talk radio, my thing is basically interviewing and research. That's, I love doing that. Any guest, I go multi-layers and try to find things that people don't know about about those guests. And from that, you know, it's developed that I got press credentials from the Rangers because someone evidently tracks these things that they said, you know that last season you covered 17 Ranger games, you asked John Tortorella 15 questions, 12 of his answers were directly quoted in the, the three daily papers. So you know the questions to ask. You know, we'd like you to, you know, come and do radio. So I moved over to radio as well. And from that, I get, just like you do here, every day you come home and there are books. And every day I read the books and for the interviews. And everyone in the press box says, you should do a book. And I said, I'm, I don't like writing. I sit <laughs> next to Howie Carpenter. Howie and I have developed a friendship over the years. And Howie says, you come up with the idea, you do all the interviews, you can write you know, what you want and I'll punch it up because Howie writes. So I said, it's got to be something I'm interested in. So this was the year that the Rangers were on their Stanley Cup run, and I said, I got it. It's the 10th anniversary of the shootout. Let's do a book on the shootout. It was a perfect storm because that year we were able to interview every single NHL official, player, coach, and I have credentials so I could go to any team. We did that book, and it was a very cool process for me. It's something that I'm sure none of my English teachers in high school would have ever dreamed that I would have written a book. And it was kind of a rush. It was uh, a cool thing. And my publisher then said, do you have another book? You know, what else do you want to do? I said, again, it's got to be something that I'm into. So throughout this, my wife and I decided it's time to downsize. We had a four-bedroom house. We wanted to move someplace smaller. So we're getting the house ready to sell. And getting the house ready to sell, we had to redo some flooring. In the then there was this built-in wall unit from the time we moved from Queens, 1985, to now. So in ripping up the flooring, they had to take down the wall unit. I'm upstairs, I hear this tremendous thud and crash after crash after crash. I come running downstairs and there on, in my den are 150 Betamax tapes strewn all across the floor. <laughs> I bend down just to pick up one. And this was one week after Ralph Kiner passed away. The one I picked up was 1985 Mets opening day. So I run into my garage, and for some reason, I still had a Betamax deck. I hooked it up to my computer, you know, fast forward, fast forward, and I'm saying, please be there, please be there. 
and there it was, Ralph Kiner welcoming Gary Cooper and Mookie Wilson to Kiner's Corner. And as soon as I saw it, I said, that's it. That's the book. There have been books done on Ralph Kiner, his playing career. There's never been a book done on Kiner's Corner itself. I called the Powie. I said, let's do this. I pitched it to the publisher. He said, absolutely. And that's, that, that downsizing my house is the reason for this book. <laughs> Well, I don't want to ask how old you are, but the fact that you have Betamax tapes speaks for itself. Uh, I'm the exact same age, I have a feeling. Uh, when, what are your earliest memories of Kiner's Corner? My earliest memories, I would have to realistically say my most vivid memory, which is probably my earliest, is, uh, and it was just last week actually, was the Near Perfect Game. I, I, for some reason, that's etched in my mind. Nancy, not as much Tom, but Nancy Siever, you know, she still had tears in her eye from the fact that Tom had lost the, the perfect game. And that was the one I remembered the most, and that was probably, you know, that's 1969, so I was nine years old. So that was my most, probably the earliest recollection of Kindness Corner. So we're the exact same age, and we had the same guy that we both loved, so that's perfect. <laughs> uh, the, uh, if you could give, I think a lot of the people in here probably know, but some may not, and certainly some listening may not, a little overview of what Kiner's Corner was like, the, 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 where this studio was, what, what would happen, what kind of gift they would get, that, it, that type of thing. It's so difficult to describe, but probably the best way to describe Kiner's Corner is maybe 5% ESPN, you know, 10% Sports Extra, so we're up to 15%, uh, 5% maybe the Merv Griffin Show, and the rest, <laughs> and the rest Wayne's World. That's basically what it was. It was a no frills set. It was the beauty of it, though, was especially in the early days. And in the book, Tim Harkness talks about the fact, you know, we're in this era where these ball players on the bench have an iPad and can, you know, look at their last at bat, you know, pitch by pitch. Back in 1962, 60, there was no videotape. The, the players didn't see their swings. Tim Harkins said it was the biggest thrill for him to sit there in the studio, watch on this little black and white monitor his home run. So it was so low tech, this, that's what it was back then, but there was something about it, the, the feeling about it, and, and just Ralph's interaction, whether it be with the biggest stars of the day, or guys, like, for, for some reason, Danny Frisello, not a big star, was one of my favorite Mets. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just, there's something cool about Danny Frisella back in, when I was 12 years old. And um, he was someone, he passed away, he was someone that I wanted represented in the book, so I spoke to his wife, his, you know, his widow, and she said that it was so cool that the wives and the players' friends would stand outside the studio and watch it on TV. And it was, it was the thing to be on. It was uh, it's very difficult to, for someone who's never seen it to even get it, its true essence. As far as the gifts, uh, they range from the first year in 1962. Um, Nash Rambler was the, the sponsor of the show. So at the end of the segments, they would give out a matchbox replica of the Nash Rambler. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so the show also back then was just, and I should have added also like 5% Joe Franklin, because it was so eclectic <laughs> as well that he had Buddy Hackett and Phil Foster on. One of the very first, you know, probably within the first five episodes. And Buddy Hackett got the Nash Rambler and he goes, and he looks at it and he goes, that's why it gets such great gas mileage. 
<laughs> but it was things like then. Then it, it evolved to cash. Um, then it was getting gift certificates, which Doc Gooden at my fantasy camp told me during his rookie year that was his biggest thrill, never having to pay for gas. He said he'd go to the gas pump and he'd have that guinea, and it made him feel so great. Um, leather jackets from there was a, a I don't remember the name of the leather shop in Roosevelt Field. Uh, Mackie Sasser still has a jacket. It still fits him. He still wears it, and people give him grief for it. Um, then there were a lot of restaurant gift certificates, and Frisella said, uh, his, his wife said, he got $50, and that $50 could feed a whole bunch of them back in 72 at a restaurant in Queens. So very, then there was the Arbitron watches. Howard Johnson gave them all the way as gifts. Uh, that was probably around the gamut from cash, gift certificates, matchbox cars, watches, and jackets. And how did the how did the show actually start? Like, what what how did this show be? It wasn't like there were a million other shows like this. So how did this no. happen? Well, basically, there was when the Dodgers were in town. There were, when they were the Brooklyn Dodgers, they had the pregame show, and it was a big success. When the Channel Nine got the rights to the Mets, they wanted some Brooklyn Dodger tie-in, and they felt that they would do a postgame show where Ralph would speak to the players. And he also did some pregame stuff as well. But it, was, it, it wasn't, didn't survive anywhere, and no one really knows exactly what it was. In fact, the interesting thing in the research that I found is that, and you guys are all baseball fans, and I don't know how many, how many of you guys here are Met fans? All right, all right, so. That set a record, I think. So if I were to ask you guys, who do you think the first broadcast voice ever heard by New York Met fans on radio was? Who do you think? Anyone else? Okay, the first radio voice that any New York Met fan heard talking about the Mets in a pregame show was Howard Cosell. There was a radio show called Clubhouse Confidential, which was the radio pregame show to the Mets broadcast, and it was Howard Cosell. So they, they were trying to find ways to get the National League fans back to follow baseball, and that's what they came up with was the postgame show with Ralph. Well, the Clubhouse has been here for seven years, that is probably the first question that nobody in this audience <laughs> knew an answer to, especially Lee. Uh, and then since all those hands went up, I have some other questions, but I want to make sure that since there are so many Met fans here that I want to make sure they all get a, a shot. So who, does anyone want to lead off with a question for Mark? All of a sudden they're very shy. <laughs> There's no statistics because, unfortunately, WOR, not thinking, they, they reuse the tapes, they erase the tapes, and then the format of tapes changed. In fact, there's a story in the book by Steve Olbaum, who was probably executive producer number six or seven. At Shea Stadium, the studio and the, you know, where the cameras were stored were in between this walkway. And every year, right before the season would start, they would you know, break everything apart and get it all set up, and they'd walk in between these two studios. And every year, for you know, as ever long Oldbound was there, there was this huge box, and no one knew why it was, and always kept the doors open. Oldbound was walking, he actually broke his foot on it. And he was cursing, and like he said, what the hell is it? He opens it up, and there's this huge four and a half inch deck of tape, and it said, Murray the K Day at Shea. Right? <laughs> That's what they say. But then he took that out and he struck gold. It was Jim Bunning's you know, no-hitter. It was only the last inning of it. 
And he had that, and he called Rick Miner, who was the head of sports over at OR, and said, Rick, I have this tape. You know, I, I want to get it done. At that time, it was one week left before OR was getting rid of their four-inch machine. He says, you got to get it here within the week, otherwise the machine's gone. They dubbed it. He said, now what do you want to do with it? He goes, I'm going to wait. He was hoping that a Met would throw a no-hitter, and Ralph would be doing kind of his corner and be able to show it. Instead, he held it and held it and held it. David Cohn pitched a two-hitter on Father's Day, and you know he basically had it queued up. They went to commercial. He told you know Ralph, he says, just watch the monitor. And then Ralph had no idea they were going to show it. They showed it, and Ralph watched it, and they talked about it a little bit. And Oldbaum, you know, Ralph was as nice as Ralph was. He wasn't very effusive with his praise. He was very laid back, and you know, but for some reason, Oldbaum kind of identified him as a father figure. So he was looking for that positive reinforcement because it was like a really great segment. So Ralph gets up at the end of the show and leaves. And Oldbaum was absolutely crushed. And then about 25 minutes later, Ralph was walking down the hall. He had his, his leather briefcase that he always had and the cigar. He stuck his head into the, the, the control room. He said, great job, Steve, and walked out. And for Oldbaum, that was just it. But um, those were the only two tapes that basically survived, um, which made it very difficult for me. I luckily had 10 from all those Betamax tapes of all the Met games. And then from the internet, I was just doing searches, and then I, I remembered way back in the day, back in the Commodore 64 days, they had all these different forums, and there were tape traders. So if someone lived in Manhattan and then got relocated and got a job out in California, there was no satellite TV back then. There was no way of seeing the Met games. You could get the box scores, you could get the highlights, but there was no, you know, even though we were a superstation at that time, 85, 86, depends where you were. People used to trade tapes. Someone in San Diego, you know, that was a Met fan, wanted Met games, and they do them through the mail. And those forums, because the internet's forever, um, they're out there. So, and they have email addresses. So I sent out literally about 190 emails, and I think maybe three of them didn't get bounce backs. Because how many people still have their same email address from 1984? Um, I found this one guy in Jersey who was like a professional, you know videographer, and he had another five. So it was up to 15, and then there's some that are just out of there. And usually, the Mets take them down. Um, they knew of the project, and the Mets approved of the project. In fact, I spoke to Fred Wilpon the other day, because he happened to be on the field, and I asked him, because I sent him, his secretary, he's on when he first took over the Mets with Ralph, and he said, oh, you're the one that sent it, thanks. He goes, you know that, you know, we know the project, otherwise they'd all be down. So they approve of the fact that they're up there. Uh, no comment on that on the Mets. Uh, the, uh, there's a great story in here, uh, and I think it touches on a lot of different aspects of Ralph, so I just want to read the quote, and then you can take it from there. Jamie Lee Curtis throws her arms around Kiner and says, Daddy. So, <laughs> yeah. so Ralph Kiner, first of all, Ralph Kiner was not I don't think anyone would consider him a handsome man by any means, but he dated every starlet there was. It, it's unbelievable. So he dated you know, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother right before she married Tony Curtis. Like the timing is very close. So ja Jamie Lee was actually in the press room doing a press tour for Trading Places at that point. And they happened to cross paths and, and she knew of Ralph 
and I guess her mom and must have said things about him, and she's just like kidding around. And he was like, he was kind of flustered, but then when she did walk out, he like had this sly smile to, to Murphy, and it was like, uh, it was pretty funny. Anyone want to throw a question out? Do you know the Esther Williams story? No. Ralph Connor's Esther Williams story? No. Because he said he, you know, he was in California because right. he was a Hollywood guy. So there's a great story that he went out with Esther Williams, you know, who was doing all his movies in the 50s, right? When he was winning all the home run titles. So, that, and, you know, Connor's sense of humor, very dry sense right. of humor. And so he said, uh, yeah, I went out with Esther Williams for all. He said, you know, she had a, she had a swimming pool in, in, her, in, you know, in, her, in her backyard. He said that uh, she liked to swim in the nude. Great backstroke. <laughs> hey, he was neighbors with, with Lucy and uh, Ricky Ricardo, Ricky Ricardo, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. He basically, the way he got into broadcasting was out in California, Bing Crosby wanted him to be like, on, during the golf tournaments, do the color commentary for golf. And that's how he really got started in the broadcast business. By the way, the, that, that story uh, before about Esther Williams was brought to you courtesy of uh, Billy Altman, the legendary official scorer, <laughs> among many other things. This question would be a time frame of when, when did Kind of Corner end, and what is your time frame in terms of the videos that you have? And how far back well, did they go? My, the, the earliest video I have is probably 80-ish, 1980. Uh, it goes up to like 92 or 93. Uh, you know, the show ran from 62. There's no official date because they would bring Ralph back occasionally as you know, weekends, and if the games at that point, when it turned over to the Sports Channel America before it was SNY and all that, it was Sports Channel America to start. And believe it or not, Jigs McDonald did some of the Met games at that point. But um, if the games were on OR on a Sunday, they would do a Kiner's Corner. Interestingly enough, which I, I never even remembered this. Um, they did Kiner's Corner on the road, on the on the actual on the field. There's a couple of the ones that I have uploaded there. It's Hojo uh, on the field in St. Louis. Um, there's uh, Wally Backman in the dugout in Chicago, so they, you know, with the headsets and kind of remotely. Um, he, Ralph did go down sometimes on the field, on the road as well. Yeah. All right, I have another question. The, uh, there's another quote, if you could just take it from here. Well, Mayor, congratulations, and I'm glad you're a part of this. Well, there's a couple of stories in there. There's one about Mayor Wagner, but there's also one when the Mets won the 69 pennant with Lindsay and Either or both would be good. But just the way, also in the 86 World Series, he also interviewed Ed Koch. That's the one. It was Koch at the end, and you know, it was in the locker room, and Ed Koch was there. It's just his way, it didn't matter who he was interviewing. He just had a way of putting everyone to ease. Wagner at that point was not uh, very beloved also when right. he interviewed him and he put him at ease as well so it, it, Ralph if you speak to everyone he just put every single person at ease by the way this, when you mentioned before about the Betamax when you went back you, uh, just this has nothing to do with Ralph but your, your, your Betamax machine was still working absolutely <laughs> I had, actually I had two Betamaxes why I didn't throw them out I, now they're gone once we downsized and once I digitalized them I threw them all out I had Lots of weird stuff, uh, strange games that I don't even know why I taped them. But that's you know, this guy Phil Grice, who actually was a, a big help on, in the project as well. Very interesting person. He lives. There was a Neil Best did an article on him because I, I told Neil about him back in the 50s before there was any Betamax, before there was any taping. 
he actually took the back of his television off and somehow clipped you know, reel-to-reel -reel audio, so it was line-to-line, -line, out of the back of his television. And he taped everything. He, he has about 20 to 30 Kiner's Corners. Like, he had one that we had with Stan Musial and uh, Duke Snyder together. Uh, he had one with Jimmy Pearsall, which is very interesting also. It was when Pearsall first came to the Mets, and he had an altercation with a fan in Chicago, and Ralph talked about that. Uh, he had the one after the 27-inning game where they had um, like five Mets. The Mets lost that game, but he still had five Mets from that 27-inning game. So he's got a ton of audio as well. So it's very interesting. I, like He still has those. I still have the Betamax tapes. Why? I have no idea. Did anybody turn down the show? Did anyone turn down the show? No, no one that I know of turned down the show. In fact, and, and this is interesting because we were able to find two people that corroborated the story, but it doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so Steve Olbaum was working and also, um, I think it was Gary Myers, the, the writer. Gary Myers happened to be an intern for Kindness Corner. This was during the 73 National League playoffs, the Pete Rose, you know, Bud Harrelson brawl. Supposedly, and see why it doesn't make sense to me is because that was a nationally broadcast game. I don't remember, I was at that game, so I don't remember if it was also televised locally by OR. I don't know if back in the day if it was exclusive national rights or if you were able to broadcast locally. But Olbaum and Jay Horowitz, the Mets public relations person, both relayed the story that Pete Rose, after the game, was besieged by reporters. Someone from the, you know, Kiner's Corner, intern went down and said, you know, Ralph Kiner, with and he just left the, the scrum of players and was on Kiner's Corner supposedly the day of that brawl. I haven't been able to, to find that, and I haven't been able to find the actual TV listing from that day to find out if it, it's accurate. I don't know. But uh, no one turned down the show. One person who wanted to be on the show in the worst way was Ricky Horton, the St. Louis Cardinals pitcher. Ricky Horton grew up in, I believe, Westchester, and he was a huge Met fan. He had posters of Ron Sabota, Cleon Jones on his wall. His dream was to be on Kiner's Corner. Opening day of 86, he outpitches Dwight, and uh, the game went extra innings. So he was supposed to be on Kiner's Corner. As he's heading down to Kiner's Corner, Mike Shannon, the Cardinals radio guy, corners him and keeps him too long, and he's not able to do the show, and Ozzie Smith goes on instead. And to this day, it's his biggest regret in baseball. <laughs> Somehow it got back to the producers of the Mets about this, and they actually had him pre-record an intro to a Kiner's Corner for St. Louis, but he said it wasn't the same. Um, interesting, Ricky also had a story wasn't pertinent to Kiner, so it, it didn't make the book, but I, I thought it was tremendous. Uh, such a huge Met fan that when he was pitching for the White Sox, it was a day where Yankees were having old-timers day. And he happened to be in the dugout, and the Yankees were honoring all their you know, former players that day. Ron Soboda was also a Yankee, so Ron Soboda was there. So Horton had just finished speaking to Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and he was speaking to them. He said Ron Soboda came out, and he was so awestruck that he couldn't get the courage to go talk to Ron Soboda. And I told Ron Soboda this at fantasy camp, and he just started laughing. He said, wait. So he was talking to Mantle and DiMaggio, and he couldn't come up to me. But that's how much the Mets met to a lot of people. You mentioned the intro, so the music. The, it's a polka song, but then later on it changed. Also, the interesting thing was that Ralph had a fight to keep the K. 
they wanted to spell it Kiner's Corner with a C. Yeah. And he said he wanted to keep that Pittsburgh, it was Kiner's Corner, it was actually, it was Greenberg Gardens first, then went to Kiner's Corner, and he fought to keep the K. But, and somewhere along the line, they did change it. Um, on YouTube, we also, we have the whole loop of the full song on there, but it's, yeah. And you hear, the, the two things you hear right away, when you hear that, and when you hear the original OR, Meet the Mets theme. Right. I mean, when I hear that Meet the Mets theme, I don't know about you, but the thing I envision in my mind is that one catch that Bud Harrison makes during that intro, that when he's jumping high in the air, but that whole WR vibe. But that's what it was. I mean, you knew Tyrant's Corner was coming on. Do you know who wrote the original song? Or it was, it was no We have it in the book. That to me was not, the, yeah. I know the song, it's some sort of polka, it's old. Every single Met manager, every manager along the years. The, the, the best story is that the very first Met manager, Casey Stengel. Casey Stengel had a, uh, he would just talk. He would ask him a question. That's what, you know, Ralph loved him because Ralph would ask one question. Right? What would happen is Casey would continue to talk through commercial breaks. they go to commercial break, they'd come back, Casey would still be answering the same question. <laughs> no, this is the truth. Right? And Casey also was a little out of it at times too. So he had the, the clip-on mic, and you know the interview ended, but they were still filming. You know, afterwards, Ralph would give the scores, and the guests would stay there. So as Ralph starts giving the scores, Casey just gets up and walks off, but the mic's still connected. He brought down the entire set live on TV. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, so every manager has been on. Also, interestingly enough, opposing players have been on. Um, What's also interesting about this book, which if you're a fan of Kiner's Corner, you're gonna love, because Kiner's Corner wasn't only about the stars. It was about those guys that you know, would get that one shot to be on Kiner's Corner. And one of those guys was Kevin Cobell. And he pitched a great game against Vita Blue, and they had them both on. And the thing about Kiner's Corner also is that the guys would come in back in the day, you'd go in the clubhouse, and it wasn't soda. The first thing they'd hand you was a beer. So the guys would go straight from the clubhouse with the beer in hand, and they'd have to put it behind the desk. So you know that Kevin talked about how he and Vita Blue hid the beers. Um, the best story about opposing teammates being on is Jerry Kuzman and Tom Seaver. By far, that's my favorite story in the book. So evidently, I did not know this. Jerry Kuzman, and, and you know Kuz, he doesn't seem like he's a practical joker. But back in the day, he was a practical joker. and. They had this thing that he saw in the back of the sporting news. It was called Mr. Mike. And what it was was a radio frequency transmitter that you would be a handheld mic, and if you tuned your radio to a certain frequency, you could broadcast over it within like 50 feet. Jack Simon, who was the producer of the Mets broadcast at that point, who actually is Jason Alexander's uncle, he's now deceased, um, did a perfect Howard Cosell impersonation. So Kuzman wrote this whole elaborate script and hands it to Jack Simon and he goes, listen, count to 15 and start reading this. So he's in the trainer's room, which is right outside the clubhouse. He said the clubhouse had one radio and it was in Tom Seaver's locker. He walks over, he's counting in his head and he starts fiddling while Tom Seaver's talking to M. Donald Grant in front of his locker room. <laughs> he tunes it over and he's counting his head. Just as he tunes it in, Jack Simon is Howard Cosell says, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you breaking sports news. The New York Mets have traded Tom Seaver <laughs> and Ed Cranepool to the Houston Astros for Doug Rader, which every Met hated because they had a, a bench-clearing brawl because of him, and some pitcher that the Mets always lit up. 
Kuzman says Seaver just like almost looked like he, he turned completely white. <laughs> he said, Ed Cranepool is throwing stuff all, all over the locker room, saying MFing the Mets left and right. <laughs> Kuzman realizes, oh man, this is not cool. Runs into Jack Simon and says, Jack, get out of here, never say anything about this to anybody. <laughs> Fast forward, Seaver gets traded. Years later, the first game he comes back at Shea Stadium, he pitches against Jerry Kuzman. The two of them are guests on Kiner's Corner. The first question Ralph asks is, you guys were teammates for so many years, you must have some great stories. So Kuzman decides, all right, you know, it's been so many years, but he starts telling the story live on the air. As, and he's looking at the monitor, and as the camera gets closer and closer on a one shot, right on Kuzman's face, Seaver sees it as well and sees that, you know, he's not in camera. He leans just out of camera, and as Kuzman's continuing to tell the story, he goes, you am I'm gonna have to kill you after. And Kuzman says he's gotta keep the straight face through the whole thing. It just, but to hear Kuzman tell it all these years later, he still is such a joy in his voice telling it. It's, uh, it was awesome though. That was that was a really good one. And the other one was Ed Charles. And, and I haven't talked about Ed Charles in in all the different places, but uh, it dawned on me. I don't know why, because Ed Charles is such a gentleman. But Ed Charles really, truly loved Ralph Kiner and. The glider, you know, the Bob Murphy, no one throws a slider to the glider, comes from Kiner's corner. Because he hit a home run and Ralph said, what did he throw you there? And Ed said, he didn't know what he threw, he just said, that's ah, a slider. So the next broadcast, he said, you know, no one throws a slider past the glider. In fact, Ed loved him so much that when the Mets had Ralph Kiner's day, the night before they did a banquet, and Ed wrote this tremendous poem and I asked him if we could reprint the poem in the book, and he said absolutely. So the full poem is in the book, and he, you know, he he loved Ralph. It's Benny Ayala is another. I mean, every single person we spoke to loved him, but Benny Ayala, which is also interesting, Benny Ayala, his first game as a Met, made it to Kinder's Corner for his very first at bat, he had a home run. Benny Ayala at that point spoke very little English, so they brought Felix Mian as the translator. But what was interesting was I asked Benny had he known that's the main thing also. We asked every player that we interviewed if they had known of Ralph's stature in the game when they were sitting with him. Some of them did. Some of them knew nothing about him. But interestingly enough, Benny Ayala said, I knew everything there was to know about Ralph Kaina. And I'm saying, like, how? He said, because he went to Mets Winter Instructional League. Not only was Ralph a broadcaster, but Ralph also served as a hitting coach in the Instructional League in a, and at that point, the Mets shared the Instructional League with the St. Louis Cardinals. So Ralph was a hitting instructor for both the Cardinals and Mets during the Winter Instructional League, and Benny was so thrilled that Ralph was able to talk to him about his home run because he felt that Ralph was a part of that home run. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, it's amazing in retrospect, going over that show, that his greatness as a player never, never came up during the show. I mean, he never, he never talked about it, the players never talked about it. I didn't remember Kindness Corner growing up, that was just the name of the show. I had no idea that until my father he had somehow along the way he said that, you know, from Pittsburgh and he was hitting home run. And I think part of the charm was that you know, no matter who he interviewed, he wasn't this great player. He was just a guy who used to talk at the choo choo or maze or right. I think that was the charm. See, the interesting thing is that, you know, I was on TV the other night with Steve Obermeyer and he asked me, he, he tried to put it in perspective. He said you know, it would kind of be like, he, he took Ralph's career and he said, it'd kind of be like today if Derek Jeter, you know, co-hosted a post-game show. I said, no, it wouldn't. I said, because you have to understand, Derek Jeter is in an era where 
There's ESPN. There's a Major League Baseball package. I said, you have to realize that Ralph Kiner was known throughout the country from playing in Pittsburgh when there was no highlight package. But you know, the only place you got it were articles either in the sporting news or sports magazines, but yet he was known all over. The players that played, because I asked some of them, you know, how did you not? And he said, look, when I was growing up, I didn't even watch, but I was out on the field all the time. Then I was playing organized ball or this or that. So they didn't really watch games. Um, so they didn't know. Lenny Randall, on the other end of the spectrum, is a student of the game. And on top of it, in college, his college roommate was Steve Greenberg, Hank Greenberg's you know, son. So they talked about it. So Lenny knew everything about it. Some players like Ron Svoboda knew, and in fact, Svoboda credits him for the two home runs that won the Carlton game, because two days before, Ralph worked with him down in the batting cage. Other guys said, had they known what an athlete and, and what a gentleman he was, they wouldn't have felt you know, that it was an imposition to walk to the back of the bus. There were players that would walk, the, they traveled with the team. You know, Murphy, you know, Kiner, and Nelson were on the team bus. Some guys sat and picked Ralph Springs. Other guys, like Wayne Garrett, you know, never asked him a question. And, he, and to this day, he regrets it. Um, so it, it's very interesting, especially if you look from generations. The guys from the 60s knew, like Ed Charles knew, because he wasn't that far removed from playing. But once you got to the 80s, those guys had no clue who he was as far as in the game, other than they just thought he was the Mets broadcaster because he was around forever. You know, Howie and I, we debated whether we were going to put that in because it somewhat marginalizes him like as a buffoon. And his malaprops were, made him lovable because he didn't care. He made the mistake and he never tried to cover them up. Um, on, on our YouTube page, there's a, a probably about 11-minute reel of all of them. Um, my favorite one is the Cooper one because to show you how much he didn't care, Obviously, as soon as he said Gary Cooper, the producer in his ear said, Carter. And he goes, Gary Cooper, what am I thinking about? And then he goes, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. Which was like, what? He goes, you know, it's opening day. Glenn Close sang the national anthem. She's in the movie The Natural. The Natural reminds me of Pride of the Yankees, which reminds me of Gary Cooper. So not only did he not care that he made the mistake, he wanted to explain to everyone why he made the mistake. Uh, the, you know, the one is, you know, happy Mother's Day. I want to wish all you mothers a happy birthday. Um, there's a great one uh, somewhere in that clip, the, the, the nine-minute compilation, where he's trying to explain the magic number. The Mets were playing the Cardinals, and the magic number was three, and he's going, Fran Healy's head looks like it's going to explode. Fran's like looking at him like, what are you saying? And it makes no sense. Um, there's one where he's talking about Tim Raines stealing a base, and Tim Raines is batting, and, and someone else steals the base. Uh, you know, every single, every single one of their sponsors, Mitsubishi, Manufacturers, Hanover, just butchered them all and butchered them over and over and it made no effort to try and get it because he knew he was never going to get it. Uh, thousands of ways of introducing Tim McCarver, uh, Tim MacArthur, um, Tim Kiner, hi, I'm, I'm Ralph McCarver, he did that a couple of times. Um, just so many of them, but it, we tried to put them in a, because that's what made them lovable. You didn't take anything, and maybe because I'm a Met fan, I look at you know John Sterling's you know mistakes, and I I'm very critical of them. 
because it's it's different. You know, it's it's you know, uh, home runs when the guy catches it's the end. Of the, he doesn't know how many outs. There's a difference. Ralph was just he, he was thinking ahead of time and saying the wrong things. Did he ever interview Jerry Coleman? He he interviewed Coleman. He's, he's, there's no one Coleman he didn't. Was pretty good right. He did time. interview Coleman uh, very early on. Yeah. Malapropisms yeah. too, but another great player. One guy I didn't speak to is uh, I didn't ask him. He must have been on, no? Did you ask him? Uh, you don't know? He had a saying in the, uh, the clubhouse on Father's Day for the Kiner. He went in there and he'd say, Happy Father's Day, all your mothers. For those Players listening, that's uh, it's Joe Pignatano's grandson. Uh, that's his voice. <laughs> <laughs> I never I didn't even so thought about asking. He must have had fun interviewing Yogi Berra when Berra was the best manager. Oh, uh, listen, there was so many. Choo Choo Coleman, okay? Now that's. This is the interesting. The internet is great because that—that's the other thrill of writing the book is you know trying the research and the the legendary story with Choo Choo Coleman is you know what does your wife call you this and that and uh, you know and obviously there's no tape of that so I had to track that I said I had he, he was like the white whale <laughs> so like, I had to track down Choo Choo Coleman drilled down to find where he did a book signing found out not a book signing a, just an autograph show years ago found out who set that up was able to you know face I'm Facebook friends with some guy named. But with actually like 19 guys named Joe Carter, whatever, just to, because this is that guy's name. So I Facebook friend everyone with that name to try and find out if they were the one that did the show. So finally got him, spoke to him. He gave me his contact information. He said, that never happened. He said, you know, that story has been out there forever. But he goes, I would have never said that. I, no one knows where that came from. He said, Coleman said, you know, he came on. He asked me about my hits. and said the hit. He goes, but he goes, he goes, I've been trying to tell people for years that never happened, but that, that was interesting. For those who don't know, what's the story that did not happen? That, well, basically <laughs> was, you know, because Choo Choo, and his name is not Choo Choo, what does your wife call you? She calls, he, supposedly the story goes, she calls me for dinner. You know, what's your wife's name? Mrs. Coleman. But it was all this stuff that never happened. <laughs> Right. What is your wife's name and what is she like? Well, he oh, she said, likes me fine. Mrs. Right. Coleman, she likes me. Right. <laughs> likes me, Bob. Calls well, Bob. Bob, right. Yeah, that's and he said he never had. was on Ken Burns' documentary. Right. Well, uh, there's a couple of things on, in Jackie Robinson stuff that also was not accurate. But. One of my favorite uh, things that I recall about it was. Stream of, he was stream of consciousness. Well, speaking of stream of consciousness, that forget about Choo Choo Coleman. My white well, which unfortunately I never found, was George Coleman was on Kindness Corner. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that tape was there. If you Google it, you'll see a number of links, but every single time you go to that link, it's been removed. And I can't find who's got it. I've tried to get in touch with the uh, George Coleman estate, his children, to see if they had it. I couldn't find that. Interestingly, we during a rain delay, he actually had the home plate umpire Eric Gregg on. Uh, it was during Eric Gregg's book tour, mm -hmm. 
and Kevin Gregg is now the head of public relations for the Philadelphia Phillies. He had never seen it. I sent it to him, and you know, his father passed away, and he, it was unbelievable for him to see that, which is interesting. There's so many different people that have been on that show that were not just baseball. So. Well, these are, but you had one? Well, I remember when Eric Shaw was part of that Berkshire group and uh, with the Padres and a trainer who was pretty, you know, for an athlete, was pretty politically hip. I mean, not right wing, you know. I mean, he, he mentioned that the Shao, S-H-O-W, the family name was S-C-H-A-U. And I mean, I, that kind of, my ears perked up for, you know, to explain a little bit about where he might have, he might have come from. Oh, it's also interesting, there's a story about, I think it was Pittsburgh, it might have been Pittsburgh, and Ralph loved his cigars. And he was smoking the cigar in the press room. And they came in and said, sorry, Mr. Kiner, you know, there's no smoking allowed here. And he goes, this used to be a great town. <laughs> <laughs> I have one, I don't, you guys didn't get to talk to Willie Randolph, right? No. Because I told Howie that the only time I ever saw this on Kiner's Corner, when the one year that Willie Randolph played for the Dodgers, okay, he had a, it was a Sunday afternoon game, he hit a three-run homer of Don Ossie to right center. He had like three homers that year to win the ball game, and Ralph had him on. And Randolph sat there, and at the beginning of everything, he said, I'm sorry, Met fans. It's the only time I ever saw an opposing player apologize for getting a game winning hit, and he was sincere. Because so he said, You know, my family's in Brooklyn. Right. He says, I'm sorry, everybody. You know. uh, and my other memory that I was remembering from 1969 was, and this was again when you remember things because they were just so odd, the only time at home, outside the, the time to get the home runs at Wrigley Field, the only time that Al Weiss was ever on Carnegie's <laughs> Corner for a defensive play, which is the only time I ever saw that in my lifetime yep. of watching the Mets. The Mets had a home stand against the West Coast teams in the, in 69. That is when it solidified that they had a real team because they beat the Giants and the Dodgers. No, right. the, I think it was the Friday night game against the Dodgers was an extra inning game. Weiss was playing second base. The Mets had Ron Taylor pitching. The Dodger leadoff hitter, I believe, I know he was on third base, was Billy Grabarkowitz, who was a spare player who was really Almost fast. made the All-Star game in a write-in boat as well. Yes, but, but a very fast runner. So he's on third base. The Mets brought the infield in. And whoever was up for the Dodgers hit a ball right up the middle. Now the infield was in. It went, Ron Taylor went to try and field it. It went off his glove. Went off his head. Went off his head. Was Taylor, that's and, it. That's in there. And Weiss, who had broken towards the middle, the ball went the other way back towards where second base was. He somehow got the ball and either barehanded or just in one thing threw home and got the guy out at home plate. Right. It was the great, one right. of the greatest plays I've ever seen. The Mets wound up winning the game one to nothing. He was the guest on Carner's corner, and what I always remember was Weiss was shocked that he was on, <laughs> that he was on the broadcast because it was you know, it was for a defensive play. Well, that's the other thing, is that if you were a Met fan, and we had fun with it because actually as we were winding down the project, it was right after the Mets playoff run this year. And so they asked us if we would put, before it went to the press, if we would write another chapter on this year's run. And we had fun with it. We were saying, like, first of all, the Chris Heston, who pitched the no-hitter last year against the Mets, we, we know that if he, that game, it was a home game, he would have been on Kyrie's Corner, and you know he would have called him Charlton Heston. <laughs> 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 
what would he have called Noah Syndergaard? Yeah. <laughs> just, and just like the different players, and could you envision that? And, and even today, I, I think that we've gotten so analytic and, and you know, exit velocity and you know, the miles per Ralph, that was just pure. You, you asked him what kind of pitch it was. It, it's not, you know, today with the shift and everything, we were wondering, now Steve Gelbs is very good, I, you know, but he doesn't have the stature that Ralph did. And Keith and Ron, I, I don't think they'd have the patience to do it. But I think that Met fans would love to see a hybrid of Kynes Corner these days. You know, I, I know that SNY's post game is great with the, you know, whether it be Zeal or whether it be, you know, uh, Figueroa or, you know, when it, you know, Lima Zilli, whoever was there, it's good, but it, it's so much over an analyzation as opposed to just sitting down with one guy for 16 minutes, a couple of highlights, boom, you're done. And the beauty of Kynes Corner was, like you said, Al Weiss. You never knew who was going to be on, whether it be the, you know, the Willie Mays, you know, especially back then. We didn't get to see the Giants every day. So aside from my baseball cards, you know, to see a guy like Chris Spire or Tito Fuentes or, you know, on the Cardinals, McCarver back then or, or just, you know, Dal Maxwell, guys that you wouldn't normally ever see talk, that was the beauty of Kindness Corner. In the beginning, you saw a lot more visiting <laughs> than you did of the Mets. <laughs> well, the, Rich? Just curious, the, did you come across any instance where somebody, where there was a guest host on Kindness well, yeah. Ralph went on strike. He was, I, I think he only made like $50 an episode of Kindness Corner back then. He said, I'm not doing it anymore. you got to give me more money. So they put Murphy in there, and they made Murphy in a very odd situation. So Murphy actually, I mean, it's not quite Joan Rivers for Johnny Carson, but Murphy did it for, I think, maybe five or six episodes. They still called it Kindness Corner. I don't know how they explained him not being there. And then the contract dispute was, and I think he got $75 an episode. <laughs> none of the, like I said, none of the tapes. So it, it's an absolute sin. It's just, you know, the SNY was trying to, out of the, the copies I had, was trying to build some sort of winter replacement, but they, they didn't have enough content. You know, they were thinking of just doing all pictures. You know, they didn't have enough content to make it like a 13-week run out of the, all the different episodes. They did like a Kindness Corner Revisited. I think they had like four episodes where they spoke to, you know, Davey Johnson and a couple of the guys. Um, but there's just, it's surprising that there's not enough stuff even from the 90s left. Did uh, uh, Ralph ever express any uh, overt dislike for anyone who came on the show? Did anybody didn't get along with Ralph? Not that I've heard. Not, you know, I've heard just every person you speak to, every person that, you know, was a director or producer, we have like, mostly every single person that worked with him, they all, he was just so revered because he was just, he could fit in with whatever room you put him in. You know, whether it be the ball players, whether it be the ushers in the stadium, whether it be the producers, the cameramen, he just, and he never, he had put on no airs. You would not know this guy was a Hall of Famer or a star. You know, just to embellish the point you made about there's not a show like this where an opposing person could be on. You notice you, you, they never show a highlight of a great play by another team. Right. And now Mets fans are taking to booing, you know, Murphy or anyone who beats them. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, this this was a town that gave Stan the man the name because he was that man that kept beating the Dodgers or at least making them make it hard for him, but he tipped the cap. So that's right. you know. Well, I think that's a little bit societal as oh, well. Yeah, um, 
in the day, you know, I don't think there would be any ball player that found out he was traded while he was on the field because of Twitter. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. But that, you know, I think Met fans long for a show like that. I really do. I think it would be successful. Although it's probably, again, when we wrote this book, it's a very niche, niche audience because it's people of my era. Like, a lot of young people have no idea and, and couldn't even fathom. If, they, if you put that on a TV for them now, that set, and the, the poor lighting and the, the poor you know, production value, they, they, they'd laugh. But you know, it was something every Met fan looked forward to every night after the game. And it didn't matter if the Mets won or lost. You wanted to watch that show. Well, it's, it's, these are beautiful stories and beautiful memories as a, as a fellow Met fan, but they really are beautiful memories. So I would like to just close with the way you open in your dedication, which is this book is dedicated to the holy trinity of New York Mets broadcasters, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, and the subject of Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner. Thank you for providing the soundtrack of the summers of our lives. Summers just aren't the same since you are gone. The name of the book, Down on the Corner, the authors Mark Rosenman and Howie Carpenter. Thank you so much. Thank you.